welcome to another uh, Alia Graphic Creator Chat. Uh, I'm James, and today I'm joined by two absolutely wonderful people, uh, Jessica Walton and Ashka. Uh, and together they co-created um, an incredible comic called Stars in Their Eyes uh, through Fremantle Press. Uh, and that's been available since October last year. I think it, I think that's right. Yeah. Um, so Jessica is a queer disabled writer whose writing credits include the picture book Introducing Teddy, uh, several short stories for kids and teens, and poetry, which has been collected in anthologies such as Growing Up Disabled in Australia and The Other F Word. Um, they also wrote a, a co-wrote a, an episode of the TV show Get Kraken, which was focused on disability. And Ashka is an energetic visual storyteller, comic maker, and science communicator who has illustrated a range of books for children of all ages, produced some extremely interesting science comics, and has travelled Western Australia and I think the world running shows and workshops about illustration, visual literacy, and science. And some of these were done through SciTech. Um, and privately, yeah. And privately, yep. Yeah. Um, and Ashka also has the uh, most wonderful way of describing the uh, diacritic in her name of the little line above the letter S changes the sound to that of running water, which I think is the most wonderful way I've ever heard that uh, a diacritic described. So, um, so have I missed anything? You both have such wonderful long. Uh... <laughs> no? Okay. Uh, you got it. So great. So we might start by asking what got you interested in comics to start with? Um, and Jessica, you got to go first being listed on the book, so we might go with Ashka first for the interview. How's that Perfect. sound? Sounds great. <laughs> oh, right, okay. Um, well, I don't, I don't know. I think, you know, I'm a visual person. Like, I, I, I feel like it's chosen me rather than I chose it. And so in my head there's always a cartoon or a comic going on and uh, no matter what situation or problem, I see it visually. So I, I think I was drawn naturally to these books and actually, I, I grew up on a very uh, cool series of, of graph. Um, I guess they were comics uh, done by this guy called Tadeusz Baranowski. I grew up in Poland and everything was very dire. It was um, pretty much, you know, behind the Iron Curtain. And there were these really, really cool comics. I think I still have one here. And they are awesome. Not just because... Uh, Baranowski's style is really psychedelic, but the idea that the characters are very aware of them in a book. So they interact with the panels, they interact with the idea of crossing pages, ripping through, folding, and also the maker themselves and the hand. And I think that allowed me to, yeah, really get an idea of like, there's no rules. You can do what you like, and, you know, breaking that fourth wall when I'm just starting to read and realizing this is going to be awesome. So I think that was my real introduction. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's good. Do you know if they're um, if those are available in English or? Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> and I think they're really not PC anymore. I suppose oh, okay. it would be one of the issues. But they're really wonderfully creative, you know, and fantastic for their time. It's really late eighties that they were created, so late seventies, early eighties. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. So, Jess, what about you? 
Well, I've always read um, graphic novels, so I never really thought of myself as being someone who would create one. Um, but I was, you know, I started my journey as a picture book um, author and that was kind of writing what I needed for my my kids. Um, and then I was invited to write a short story for an anthology and I was keen to try my hand at, at every kind of writing. Um, so I thought, yeah, okay, I'll try a short story. Um, and that got into the anthology and then I had a go at poetry through a fellowship and TV writing uh, when I was approached to do that. So basically anytime any kind of writing comes up that I haven't done before, I think, yeah, I'm going to give this a go. Um, and I was lucky enough that Fremantle um, approached me about turning the short story I'd written for that anthology into a graphic novel. And so I was really excited about that because I had read so many graphic novels. I um, really loved the Lumberjane series and the Stephen Universe um, graphic novels. And um, and I read a lot of junior fiction graphic novels with my own kids. Um, so, yeah, I was really excited um, when they asked me to do that. And then to get to work with someone like Ashka was just incredible. Um, and I learned a lot. I, I'm sure that... Um, you know, most people when they're doing um, graphic novels for the first time, you know, it's a um, a learning process and I didn't even know how to kind of set out the writing for something like that. So I was very lucky to work with Fremantle and Ashka because they knew a lot about what to do and were able to kind of help me through that process and, and, and know, working out what to do. And that's great. Yeah. So what about libraries? How much of, have you both had to do with libraries? Um, both as far as with the with this book and just generally, uh, Jess. Uh, my first um, my first job was in a library shelving books, and I really loved it because it was such a a beautiful space. And I'd always come home with a huge pile of books from the library after work. Um, and, you know, I spent a lot of time in the library at school as well. Um, I had cancer as a kid and when I sort of came back to school, I didn't really know how to fit in and the librarian at primary school really helped me to um, kind of feel safe in the library and she'd recommend different books. Um, and actually she was one of the people I dedicated my first picture book to because she was such a huge part of the, the books that I ended up reading and that feeling the books were kind of my safe space and my escape when I was feeling a little bit overwhelmed um, at school. So, yeah, libraries have always been a really special and magical place for me and I love taking my kids there because I can jump in my wheelchair and within five minutes I'm at my local library, the kids can choose books, I can, you know, bring home some graphic novels for them to read, um, they can have a play because there's always great activities to do at the library. Um, yeah, I, I really love libraries. <laughs> That's great, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Similarly for me, uh, I mean, I, I grew up uh, in the 90s in, you know, country New South Wales, so the thing to do for me was to go to the library and read all the age-inappropriate books and who was going to stop me, you know, and that was great, like it was the world before the internet that you got to explore and encyclopedias and things, that's how you Google things uh, and photocopiers, so, so I love that, but now today, you know, librarians are the people who actually uh, make my industry run, when you think about children's book publishing and how they reach their audiences it is the libraries and the librarians who work so hard to promote it that's how I can make uh, my living you know because I get those incursions and uh, talks not just during book week and also a librarian can reach so many teachers if they're in one school on so many schools if they're in a, a, a city or a town library so yeah they're like an amazing uh, network of people who work very hard behind the scenes to really make it all happen for us yeah that's great. Yeah. 
Um, so, and what about for this book in particular? How much have you had to do with libraries for four stars in their eyes and and the development promotion, all of that sort of stuff? We actually did the Melbourne launch of Stars in Their Eyes um, online through my local library, Pakenham Library. Uh, and so that was really special to be able to do that with them, um, particularly because so many events during lockdown had kind of switched to online. Um, and there was a big, um, amazing launch happening in WA. And so to be able to then do an online event as well, um, which a lot of people who are housebound or staying at home because of COVID or who maybe can't get out because of their kids or who are too far away from the any of the launches could just log on online and, and join in that way. So um, I have really loved that aspect of lockdowns, the the access that I've suddenly got to all of these events. Um, and so to do that through my local library was really special. Yeah. yeah that's great. So with this book, what drove you both to work on the story and, and then what brought you together to create it? So it started as a um, short story from you, Jess, and then became the other. So we might start with you for this one. Yeah, so it started in the anthology Meet Me at the Intersection from Fremantle Press, um, which is an amazing collection um, of really great voices, uh, which are kind of underrepresented in the publishing industry. So uh, in, sorry, in published books. So that was kind of the idea of the anthology was to bring together underrepresented voices. Um, and so I really was so honoured to be in that because it was my first time um, trying to write a short story. And I had a lot of trouble doing it because I really wanted to write someone like me as a main character. And I guess I hadn't read a lot of books with someone like me as a main character. So um, it was a bit of a process of kind of sending something to Fremantle and then um, Emmeline Quaymalina, who was um, working with me on kind of editing it, um, would, you know, give me some feedback. And then I kept going through this thing where I'd say, you know, oh, it's no good. I've got to pull it. And Emmeline would get in touch and be like, no, it's great. We love it. Keep it in the anthology. You know, you've got to publish it. Um, so Fremantle were really good at helping me as an emerging writer to kind of keep it in there. Um and, yeah, I guess the drive behind it was to have someone who is disabled and queer, um, who has chronic pain and anxiety um, and and has one leg, you know, to be the at the centre of a story and also to have a, a romance because I, I really feel like there's not a lot of that happening um, in Australian literature at the moment. But there are some amazing books coming through um, in terms of disability reps. So I'm lucky that I'm kind of writing into this kind of group project where we're all um, writing ourselves in. Um, but, yeah, that was what I wanted to do with the short story. And then Fremantle took it from that to, um, to a graphic novel, which was amazing. Oh, yeah, Jessica, did you wanna... yeah that, that's yeah. how it works in the, the publishing industry with, with um, you know, visuals and art is that the publisher chooses who's going to work together. It's very rare that the artists get to approach a publisher and have the collaborations approved because ultimately the publisher sees the vision for how they're going to market the book, what is trending, you know, and they have an idea of what they want it to look like and feel like, and that's how they kind of pair people up. So I suppose, yeah, you don't, that's how we met because the publisher kind of brought us together. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I was sent the short story in, from the anthology, and at that point, Kate, uh, the editor and publisher, said, "You know, what do you uh, do? You think you'd be interested in working on it?" And I remember really liking it because of Maisie. Like, there's something about Maisie that really resonates with me, because um, I think I was trying to explain this the other day. It's like 
for me as a kid, I was a weird kid, but I was also very uh, stubborn about not changing. So there was this front of like, this is who I am. But then there's this anxiety at the same time, knowing that you're going to be met, you know, with adversity. And I think Maisie has the same thing for different reasons, but it's that duality of like, I'm standing up for who I am, but also it is really stressful to do that. Oh, so I'm so sorry. I'll be right back. But Um, And then being able to work with Ashka um, on... You know, I would basically, um, I tried to kind of create a script of the the words that have been in the short story. So I had to strip away um, everything that wasn't um, dialogue and create like a script. So it felt a little bit like when we're working on, you know, on a TV script type thing, you know, you're um, it's all about the voices. And then, or that at least my side of it was, and then giving it to um, Ashka, who really created this incredible atmosphere and environment and brought the characters to life in a way that I never um, could have imagined that the words can't do by themselves. So um, I I often talk about this scene in the book that Ashka drew where um, you're getting a bird's eye view of all of the stalls at the fan con Um, and there's something about looking down on them all and seeing how busy and um, hectic it is. I can, it really like almost made me feel anxious. Like it's a beautiful illustration but it really shows how Maisie might be feeling in that environment, just so overwhelmed by the noise and the people and, um, yeah, and that's something that you can't do with words. So it was so beautiful to kind of capture that. Um, so, yeah, as an author, it's just such a privilege to be able to be part of a partnership where, you know, it really, um, the the artwork um, creates something totally new in conjunction with the words. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's like a real interesting challenge in if, if you're a writer, you know, you, you approach normally things from writing stories or books and now you're asking to strip something down to dialogue, which is, you know, essentially what a screenplay is. It's dialogue, so the characters are condensed in the uh, in what they're saying and then the rest of it is just maybe stage directions. And then the rest of the story, which normally would be written by the writer, you know, with the descriptions and the emotive things and the internal monologues and the maybe descriptions of how the characters are feeling physically that's being then written by art by someone else right so that's why like it's such a collaborative process where I'm kind of like taking it uh, and and yeah doing the emotive stuff like that's the thing that's gonna um yeah make it a, I guess package it into that medium of comics um, and Ashka was really oh sorry <laughs> Ashka was so committed to um to working through how to represent disability accurately. So it was really amazing being able to um, send some short videos of how I like, get an, get up and down from a chair, get in and out of a car, even just walking. And um, I didn't see these until later, Ashka, but um, she'd drawn these incredible reference drawings from those videos showing um, my movement and then translating that into Maisie's character um, and I can't tell you what it's like reading that book and seeing myself visually, physically represented on the page. Um, So to have that kind of collaborative conversation um, through artwork about how I, how I move and and how I move through the world was really special. And I think totally unique um, with this, this process of creating a graphic novel. 
Yeah, of course. And, you know, again, like doing the visual storytelling, the movement of the characters is part of the language that I have to use. So there is no way that I could even try to approach doing it without the authenticity. So I was really grateful that when I suggested to Jess uh, to get some videos made, because videos are the truth, you know, photos are the posed lies. It's always, you always make yourself look a particular way because that's the way we're trained. Whereas videos show you the real thing and I wasn't sure because it's quite a vulnerable thing to ask right like you don't know what's going to happen to these videos so I was really really grateful for that because that was instrumental in making me understand you know how I could yeah Yeah. I don't think I could do it without that again I I think now that I've been through that process I think anytime I would you know write a story about someone like me I would need that to be part of the process to get that across accurately so it was really special and amazing that's great so it does speak to something that I know um, Ashka was saying to me before before the interview um, about uh, one of the things that that has frustrated you is when you're just referred to as an illustrator and you've really yeah. co-created this uh, together. And I, that really um, came through in, in that answer there. So, yeah. Um, and on that thing of collaboration, um, how do you, with all these disparate elements, how do you then bring it together and make sure it's a cohesive whole? So you've, you're saying you've, you're, um, you're just working on, on the dialogue and then Ashka's working on the movement and, and all of that. How do you then make sure that they're working together? Ashley, you can take this one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the comic maker. So basically I was supplied the, the screenplay, the text, and then went off and worked for three months to create like the really rough um, bones of what the comic would feel like. And, you know, this is where I could just pause and say, so the difference between illustrating and comic making is that, you know, illustrations are the images that capture a particular moment. So if you have a picture book, you've got spreads and you might have one, two, three illustrations for a spread that capture that text. But with, the com- with this comic that you have there, that's over a thousand illustrations in that comic, if you count them as single images. So you see another problem emerges. How do you organize these images? Because comics are sequential art. And that's the other data dimension that it doesn't exist in illustrating books, which is the designing of how the book is going to be paced through layout, you know, um, uh, yeah, uh, basically evolution of panels, the pacing of words. Uh, and also, what is in each panel? Where do we slow down? Where do we speed up? You know, where do we grab the reader? Where do we want them to be scared or, or, or lo- you know, in love? How do we want to manipulate their feelings? And this is this is what you're doing. This like, kind of like building the structural engineering before you start drawing. And I think this is kind of answering a question like that's kind of what you try to plan how you're going to weave the things together. And then when that got approved, uh, I spent another like eight or nine months actually doing the the final you know rendering of everything. And then, yeah, coalescing it. Um, but yeah, I, I think you know, essentially, that's yeah, that's how it looked. <laughs> so, getting into the into the book itself, one of the things that really drew me into the story was the way hands tell so much of the narrative, um, and it they convey panic and isolation, and and they convey joy and and connection. Um, and reveal a lot about the state of mind of the characters. Um, and this is very much uh, highlighted by many panels that focus almost entirely on the hands. Was this something uh, you knew you wanted to do from the from the start or did it develop through the process of creating the comic? Uh, well, for me, I think, you know, because 
just as characters were so vivid, I imagined them as people, like they were kind of formed in my mind. And um, I could see that these young teenagers, especially, you know, when they're talking and they're meeting someone and Maisie, for example, being quite anxious, I could imagine what I do with my hands when I get anxious, you know, and it was just that uh, translation of motion into the characters. Now, another thing, like when you consider this book, it's a character driven drama. There is no action per se in it, right? Like there's no car chases. No one's like running anywhere. There's no adventure stories. Basically people are sitting and talking or they're walking and talking from, you know, from a couch to a chair. So if you just show people sitting and talking or heads talking, you know, that's extremely uh, unexciting visually. So the the, challenge then is how do you get those characters visually engaging you? And, you know, in a conversation, that's what happens. Your whole body talks. And that's why I am so interested in you know, what are the hands doing, what are the feet doing, you know, what, what which angle are we looking at, and um, that really adds to you being there with the characters and, and having that chat with them and getting really close, personal, and emotional. Right, that's kind of what we wanted with with that book. So, and and that was is that how you had pictured it, Jess, or was that was it an amazing? surprise to you when when you saw these these uh um that the hands being so so um communicative um i think talking about Maisie's anxiety is the perfect kind of into this conversation because um, when i get really anxious it is a whole body experience and um when i was reading and, and kind of taking in all of this beautiful artwork, um, I could see Maisie's anxiety physically on the page I, and I could almost feel it with her. So, um, yeah, I think the hands and also the facial expressions and just the way that, um, yeah, that Ashka is able to kind of create, um, to kind of show what's happening inside the body without any words um, is is incredible. So, you know, when she was kind of, her hands were sort of playing with, you know, her hands were kind of um, doing what I do when I'm having anxiety. And um, I think there's one where she's sort of um, dissociating and looking down at her hands. Um, and that, yeah, really spoke to me. So I, I think as an author who doesn't, um, who is not a visual artist, um, there's this incredible moment where um, you've already given over your words and then you get this beautiful artwork back. And I've had this experience with introducing Teddy and then again with Stars in Their Eyes and um, and particularly with Stars in Their Eyes because something kind of new has been created and so much of it is visual art um, where this thing that you've seen in your head is kind of on the page but it's also something totally new and totally unexpected and beyond what you could have imagined um so yeah whether it's the hands or um you know the scenes looking down on the um the stalls or um you know the swimming pool and the way that the water moves as Maisie moves through the water um yeah I was just in love I was very emotional reading it I was overwhelmed by how perfect it was and it was beyond anything I had in my mind when I when I gave over those words. Very lucky. <laughs> I'm very lucky. Yeah, the swimming pool is an interesting one. I, I, um, one that stuck to me is the, the moment that she's surfacing and yeah. the, the surface tension hasn't yet been broken. Yes. It was a beautiful, beautiful moment. Oh, yeah, and that scene is so important to me. So the way the water moved and the way it kind of protected her from the outside world and the, the ableism that she was about to experience was just, yeah, and then breaking through and kind of seeing 
seeing this person kind of looking down, this patronising. <laughs> it was just so perfect. So, yeah. And that is a real experience that, that has happened many times. So it was maybe not exactly that way, but many, many variations on a theme. So, yeah, that scene was so beautifully captured. And, you know, on a side note, I have uh, been using this scene, the few pages from the comic, without any words, with classes and saying, what do you think is happening? And when you get that scene in the end where the ladies giving her the first, oh, my gosh, you know, you're so inspirational. And there's no words, but you can see her body language. And I ask the students, what do you think she's saying there? Like, because clearly this interaction is not something Maisie wants. And they, this is when they get it. You know, they get what is this thing that they could say that is actually... Uh, well, inappropriate, but you know, well-meaning, and so yeah, it's it's really interesting that that you know the power of, of that visual um, revelation, I suppose, to the reader who might not be you know from from the position of Maisie's uh, character. Yeah, yeah. yeah when I wrote that scene, I was just trying to communicate this thing that really happens to me, and to try and show how unpleasant it is and how common it is. Um, you know, the comment with the mum about you know making the cards with Stella Young's. Um, you know, linked to Stella Young's speech on it. You know, I really wanted to communicate what that feels like, but I hadn't really thought about its application in an educational space. And, you know, I'm a teacher, a casual relief teacher. I go into primary and high schools. And every time I meet a new class of kids, we have a conversation about disability because they can see my leg. And, you know, so I'm always talking to them about disability and ableism and all that sort of thing and how to how to interact with a disabled person um, appropriately and politely and kindly. And, um, yeah, and so to imagine Ashka like in a classroom with that book talking to kids about um, about disability and how to talk to people, that is an amazing thing. I hadn't really anticipated that um, and it makes my teacher heart pretty happy. So I can't wait to run a, a workshop with some kids on it and, and maybe unpack that scene a little bit with them as well. That's great. That leads really interesting um, what you said about Stella Young and the the mum mentioning getting the cards made up and there's also throughout the book Maisie wears a t-shirt with the words the future is accessible on it which is an actual item in in the real world outside of the ah there we go (laughs) Um, and that's created by Annie Sagara Um, and you took that real world item and, and included that in the story as well how important was it for you both to include these things of these parts of real world activism in the story so the Stella Young the um Annie Sagara um and I'm sure others that that I haven't mentioned here but yeah were worked in <laughs> very important um you know the um Cara Bufano, the amputee that Maisie looks up to is a nod to Lisa Bufano who is a an amputee um dancer and um who was um very important to me in terms of um taking on an identity as a disabled person and being proud of my body. And, um, yeah, so there are lots of little nods throughout um, to disabled activists and creators and artists. Um, And I think that's just because that's what my world is. You know, I'm surrounded by all of these amazing people who, you know, I was a a disabled kid who didn't even really know I was disabled, that I had this community waiting for me, this identity, this sense of pride waiting for me, um, that I was connected to a history of activism and arts um, and that 
all of that was just right there waiting for me and that I just hadn't connected to it. Um, so when I was in my early 30s, I started, which is, you know, not that long ago, um, I started um, finding out about that basically through social media and started connecting to other disabled people. And it changed the way that I felt about myself and about my place in the world um, and about what I wanted to do with my life. And that that was really special. But it, there's also, I think, a grief when adult um, disabled people come to that identity and that community and, and that history late in life because you realise how much you needed it when you were younger. So the idea that there are teenagers and who might be reading this story and seeing themselves, um, hopefully, and maybe connecting with that identity um, is really amazing to me. So what, what I would hope is that maybe they might look up Stella Young or look up Annie Sagara or, um, you know, find out about Lisa Bavano and uh, and kind of tap into that world as well. Yeah. And how about you, Ashkat? Was there um, instances like that that you were you were in, felt were really important to get in as well? I think I, I learned a lot from, you know, just a script. Like I Googled everything in there. I'm actually, uh, there's a lot of things, yeah, I didn't know. And even things like steven universe i've never seen it because it's like the wrong like age demographic and i don't have you know kids in my house so things like that really opened my eyes to how the new generation is seeing things like gender and uh, equality and, and, and diversity and that really excited me as well so i delved into it all and uh, uh, but yeah this is definitely you know just as uh you know just as uh, kind of addition to this creation is that they've got that um yeah um, the, the incentive to really teach us with that kind of feeling like it's an education. It's more of a conversation and a fun, fun thing to read, but we're learning a lot about this world. The real world. Right? I'm so excited. <laughs> you found out about the Steven universe through this. I'm like, yes. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <amazing>. <laughs> Basically all I talk about is Shira and Steven universe and books. So I'm just like, if I can get some of that across through this book, then that's, yeah, that's a huge win. Yes, that's perfectly understandable. Sure, and Stephen Universe are amazing too. So yeah. Um, so on the on the subject of fanning, going absolutely crazy fan on things in the book, Maisie. One of the ones that she particularly wants from the FanCon experience is meeting Cara Bifano, who we're mentioning before, um, and she's an actor who is queer and has a similar disability to Maisie. And uh, you've already touched on this a bit, but how important it just is this this representation to young people and in in our real world, at the world outside of Stars and Heroes, how well is it actually being managed? I think things are getting a lot better. Um, but, I mean, anytime there's any kind of analysis of diversity in literature, um, you know, it's never as good as it should be. So I think um, publishing in particular has a long way to go. Um, you know, the people who are making the decisions about what gets published, um, you know, they're really important because as soon as you have someone who knows about what it's like to be a part of one of these underrepresented communities kind of at the helm making the decisions. I think that really changes things. Um, and also having publishers who are really open to working with people from those communities and who are open to learning about it um, is really great. So I was really lucky with Fremantle Press because everyone there is so um, committed to, um, you know, improving um 
you know, getting getting underrepresented authors published basically and artists as well and kind of um, getting those stories into the mainstream publishing world. So, um, yeah, I think, I think publishing is a huge part of um, making sure that we have representation in literature that is important I know it's important because the first time I read a book with someone like me I remember just bawling as I was reading because it was happiness at finding it but also grief at realizing that you know younger me didn't have that experience of seeing myself on the page so um yeah I guess with Maisie I wanted to show um again what that um, how important it is. You know, she's got this one person who represents her um, and she's been fangirling over that person for such a long time and, and that this is a real dream to see someone like her. Um, yeah, and, that, and that's my experience is just yearning for that representation. So, yeah. And also Ollie is, you know, really keen to not feel alone, to connect to others, to find community, to find representation. And so I'm trying to get that across. So what can libraries do to to help improve this situation of it's it's getting better, but it still has a long way to go? How can libraries help? Celebrating those books, having displays. I've seen some incredible displays. Um, I've seen a lot of really great LGBTI book displays, um, LGBTIQA plus, sorry, um, but I haven't seen a lot of, like, displays of um, disability um, representation. So I'd love to see more of that, um, particularly uh, books written by disabled creators. Um, and, yeah, I think that would be a really <coughs> a wonderful thing. And I'd love to see more graphic novel displays too, and I've seen some amazing ones. Um, but, you know, there are so many great voices kind of writing into graphic novels and comics in Australia at the moment. So, yeah, I'd really love those voices to be celebrated too. Yeah, and I guess more independent comics too, you know, like that would be nice. I know it's probably difficult for certain libraries when you're not really not sure where to look. But I think that's where Ali could help, you know, have some sort of lists of different sources of where you can source your books from. Um, published books tend to go through a certain filter. So they've already been out in a community and they've had certain level of success and then publishers pick it up and publish it. But just so much cool stuff, even like just in Perth alone, where I am. And I imagine it's the same in Melbourne and Sydney, where there's all this really great uh, and they're all like individualized voices uh, of very specific people with their specific view of the world. And that enriches, you know, the kids experience who go and pick it up. And, it, and then it avoids being that thing where people associate comics with just one a genre because that's what is the easiest thing to buy. You know, there's so much comics can do, right? It can be, yeah. I've also seen some great displays where they're like, if you like this book, you like this book. And I think that's a great way to show, like you might have like the treehouse books that are very popular with kids um, and you might have something like where, you know, you say if you like this book, you might really like, you know, the older books by Elise Grover, which are kind of illustrated fiction or, um, you know, the Real Pigeons books by a Melbourne duo. You know, you've got... Um, yeah, I think you can get those books into kids' hands by kind of saying, oh, you liked that? You'll really like this. And I think that's something librarians already do um, an incredible job of. But, yeah, I love those kinds of displays. Or um, I also love the little notes that um, some librarians write, like little reviews of the books that they love um, and have it underneath the shelf where the book is. I think that's really effective and really cute and um, and helps kids to connect to books. So um, doing that for um, some own voices disability books would be really amazing. Um, do you have 
uh, suggestions? So you both talked about um, getting these these <laughs> books into libraries um, that aren't necessarily in the mainstream. Do you have suggestions for people who are interested in getting those books into libraries about good places to start looking? Uh, yes. <laughs> I'm like, let me bring out my pile of books. Uh, <laughs> I'm just wondering if I have any that have um, disabled characters here. There's an amazing one called Dead Endia, which is a great example of um, a graphic novel with disability representation. That's probably my favourite at the moment. Um, this one is not so much about disability representation, but it's a junior fiction graphic novel called Pizza and Taco that I'm obsessed with at the moment. Um, there are great queer graphic novels like um, Princess, Princess Ever After, which is really sweet. Um, oh, I've got so many here. Ashka, do you have any? Are we talking specific books or ways to get I, those books? I was okay. I was more talking ways to get those books, but specific <laughs> books are great too. I was like, let me show books. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, no, don't, don't apologise. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, ways to get them in. Okay. Well, I think, yeah, talking to Alia, um, you know, talking with other librarians. I know that Alia has a graphic novel book club, so initiatives like that are a really great way to find out about new books that are out there. Um, you know, looking at lists that have been made, recommending books is great. Um, and maybe even asking, you know, um, graphic novel authors, you know, do you know of any other great ones that we could stock in our library? Um, or asking, you know, school librarians, what are the kids really enjoying reading at the moment? Um, yeah, just connecting, which I think librarians do anyway. But I think that's um, uh, that's the way to do it is to, if you're on social media, also connecting with um, disabled creators or queer creators um, who are already putting the work out there because often they'll recommend other work by other creators in their communities. So, yeah, it's really just that networking and communicating with people who are already in that space. And there are events. I mean, I know we've had difficult few years and so that's been patchy in certain parts of Australia, especially, but like here in Perth, we've been pretty lucky. And so there's a lot of things like whether it's a zine fair or whether it's a, you know, we have the lo local Perth Comic Arts Festival every year. These are such good places. Uh, and it's, it'd be so encouraging actually to see people from libraries coming and having a peek to see what there are local vendors are selling. And you, you know, you'd be surprised at how much amazing kind of talent and interest is out there. And it also kind of coalesces the communities, like makes those networks uh, rather than keeping uh, those individual makers or independent makers in this narrow margin on the side, you know, and they're not part of all these uh, major mainstream advertising campaigns and, and even just um, word of mouth spread. So, yeah, I think that's really uh, amazing. And there's, there's, there are opportunities for that, you know, and I think, uh, yeah, CBCA is slowly picking up graphic novels too. And there's like, I know that events lead to other events. And yeah. so I think. That's uh, encouraging. Uh, but, yeah, definitely there's some really cool stuff. And I think I would um, also suggest, yeah, really um, uh, be surprised. Like try to even Google something like strange graphic novels or unusual graphic novels. It's so interesting how people are still inventing new ways to tell stories with visuals and words. How there's new approaches, even if it's just like a one-book gimmick my jaw never stops dropping um, and how much, how slow some comics can be. Like I love slow comics, you know, where you'd say, well, nothing happened for 200 pages, but everything happened at the same time. And that's, that really makes people appreciate the craft. Um, and I think it's nice to try different things, you know, rather if you, I know there are people who love particular genres and that's great, but like just try, try something different. See if you can uh, completely go sideways and, and maybe just Google like, uh, I don't know, horror comic, horror graphic novel or, uh, uh, you know, a, a, yeah, 
toxic relationship graphic novel. There's so many interesting things. And then on top of that, there's all these, um, I think they're called pathobiographies, where people write first-hand experiences of certain illnesses or, you know, survival <clears throat> or has a particular condition. And those things are now being picked up in certain nursing and medical courses because they help uh, these medical practitioners have empathy for the condition they're going to be treating rather than use, you know, you looking at it as a machine that needs to be fixed. So there's like, yeah, there's, I, I just think there's so many resources where you can actually go, uh, that might be surprising, where you can find lists of, of things to, to include. I love it when libraries have like a zine display too and there are so many great workshops happening in libraries with helping people make their own zines and I think um, that encourages a kind of appreciation of um, visual art and um, comics and graphic novels just to get kids kind of making zines and reading zines and adults too. Um, yeah, so I'd love to see more more zines in libraries. So um, coming back towards the towards the book um one of the one of the things um that we hear is Maisie um idolizes the character of Nightshade and Ollie um the same with Asterion um who were the characters that you identified with and saw yourselves in growing up so I know that uh Jess you said that there were weren't many but were there did you have any I mean, the only amputees I can think of seeing when I was younger were maybe like a book from um, Peter Pan and um, and Luke from Star Wars. And, um, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's quite a few amputees in Star Wars. Um, I don't think I really connected with any of them because I don't think there was much of an effort to kind of reflect real um disabled people's experiences in a lot of the stories I was seeing. So, um, you know, there were lots of pirate jokes when I became an amputee as a kid. Um, and I think that people kind of reflect back what they see in popular culture. So if there are a lot of amputees who are pirates in popular culture, then that is what people will think of when they see you. Um, or if there are a lot of kind of cyborgy humans, um, then, you know, you'll get called a robot kid or, a, you know, and, and people think that it's kind of funny and cute to be kind of referencing those things. But if you get, get them over and over and over and over and over again, you know, peg like Jess and all that sort of thing, it's not cute. <laughs> and, and I think that that speaks to the lack of representation in the culture. So, um, yeah, I can't really think of any good examples of representation for me as an amputee, um, any really good um, examples of reputation, uh, representation for me as a fat person um, or, you know, any of my other disabilities like anxiety or panic attacks. Um, all of these are kind of generally framed as negative things in popular culture. Um, so, or, you know, they're, they're a character, if they have a disability, they're either a villain or they're a character to be pitied. Um, but there are amazing examples out there now so I think that kids these days have a much better chance of kind of finding themselves on the page or on the screen um, and having someone to kind of as aspire to be or to look up to or to be like um, yeah and I think also other people who haven't had that representation of disabled people before who are not disabled um, are getting a better idea of what our lives are like, um, of what queer lives are like, um, of what fat people's lives are like, and are then able to be respectful towards those people who have those, who have those attributes in real life. So, yeah, it's getting better. It needs to be even better, though. And what about you, Ashka? 
who were some of the the characters that you saw that you could relate to growing up? <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think maybe always the outsiders. Uh, however, I, I was always really, now that I look back, I was always really excited at all the queer media that was slowly coming out in the 90s. And that's why probably I, I was drawn so much to like the European cinema. And I, you know, I lived in a country town and there was a subscription. I could go an art film. I could go and see an art film once a month in the cinema. And it was very exciting. And there'd be like two people in the cinema, me and some old person. And, um, you know, I remember being, being like really interested. And I thought, oh, it's just like a cool spin on, on a normal, boring love story. But then I realized, no, there was much more there. Like I was actually very much interested in that representation. Uh, because, yeah, I mean, as a, as a kid, I'm almost embarrassed to say this, but when I was really little, uh, I aspire to be Rambo, which is basically cut out tough guy. Like what a great way to be, you know, never think, never question, never worry about anything. And you always win. Right. And then of course I realized as I grew up, that's a terrible thing to aspire to. And that came out of lack of um, other people who maybe were as not defined, whether it's, you know, their gender or their sexual orientation or even the identity. Like I think I still am confused about my identity fundamentally. And there was never anything like that. So I just wanted to make a really, really strong identity for myself. And Rambo seemed perfect for that. So, yes, I think I'm so glad when I see that so much out there right now for a young person to see and go, wow, look at this. Look at this amazing spectrum of things I, I could be part of. It's not like I'm just a strange person in a dark cupboard. And, you know, I have to go to that cinema with the one other person to watch something that vaguely resembles what I'm interested in. Yeah. I get a little bit frustrated when I see class, like older classics being recommended to kids because I know that there are some great classics um, and that people often want to recommend the things that they loved when they were kids. But because so much has changed in such a short time, I really feel the emphasis, emphasis should be on, you know, getting those more recent books into kids' hands because it's kind of reflecting the world back a little better, I think, um, than the stuff that I grew up with. So, of course, there are special magical kind of books that, you know, will always be relevant to people but um yeah there's just been such an explosion of diversity in um in books for kids and it, and it's really yeah it makes me feel really hopeful when I see those books being kind of celebrated and recommended that's great um so one of the one of the things that comes from this um identification and all this that, that we see in the in the book is um creating fan fiction um and there's a whole big section um where Maisie and ollie work together to to make a, a fan fiction story involving nightshade and asterion um what are your views on fan fiction and and other fan created works and what would you say to people who want to try writing fan fiction or who are already writing fan fiction maybe want to take it to the next level it's amazing it's this whole amazing world of of writing and uh, so many young people take part in it and that's how they show their love for, for their show or their book that they're really into. Um, and it's also um, where I first found queer stories because people were taking those very non-queer TV shows and books and just doing what they needed. They absolutely needed that representation. So for a long time, that's where you found it and that's certainly where I found it. I remember when I met my partner, um, you know, when I, back when I, in the dark ages when I was 18 and um and she gave me this printed out 
um, display folder of a really great story with queer characters that she'd printed out and carefully put into this beautiful folder um, and said, you should read this story. Uh, and that was my first experience with fanfic at 18 and it was just like, oh, wow, these stories exist. Um, so that's probably, yeah, um, why I love it so much because I think it's a space where people make happen what needs to happen and finally those people that have kind of read those stories or written those fanfic stories are kind of becoming um, creators in the mainstream and I think they're, yeah, they a lot of them probably got their first story writing chops or read their first um, stories with represent great representation in that fan space. So I love it. Ashkin? I don't have much experience with it. I mean, maybe when I was uh, Maisie's and Ollie's age, I would draw uh, characters from, you know, Marvel and DC Comics to kind of learn to get a grasp of the movement. But then very quickly I became uh, disillusioned by how unrealistic they all looked <laughs> and started drawing my own versions of them in that style. So, you know, the comic, they would look Marvel-like with the colour and bold lines, but there would be like, I don't know, guys kissing with a balloon, you know, strange things. But it was, it was, um, so I guess that maybe that's kind of a fun fiction that I never realised I was doing. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there's, um, in terms of, you know, TV shows and things I followed, yeah, it's a cool way to make your character live on beyond the, the book or the film you've seen and, you know, keep them with you for longer, which is sad when the book ends and, yeah. I'm not going to get to hang out with them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's always that horrible feeling when a book or movie that you really love ends and you're like, no, <laughs> so the fan fiction, you know, <laughs> prevents you from feeling that for too long. You're like, I'm just going to write the next chapter. <laughs> yes, it's. Yeah. So um, coming towards the end, Ashka, do you, you've said um, before that you believe visual literacy is a particularly important skill in today's world. Um, what is it and why is it so important? So I guess visual literacy is, is, is literacy, but it's, I would also uh, almost argue that it's multimodal literacy, which is what comics do so well, where you put together various, um, various types of language to create meaning. Um, in today's world, all of our data is coming from screens whether it's your laptop or your phone or your, you know, or your uh, iPad. And that is always a soundbite, like a little headline with visual, with maybe a little animation. And the visual, what the visual does is it goes through the back of your head rather than the frontal cortex. So you don't really inspect it in the same way as you do words. And it creates a feeling straight away, like in a split second before you even read the headline. And with that feeling, with that primed emotional backing, you then receive the information. So, so what I'm trying to say is every, all the information we're getting has a particular agenda to it. And if we are not able to critically assess that because we're not taught to go, A, there's an image there, I should probably think about who made it and why. You know, that's not really a, a natural instinct unless you're taught that in school. You will succumb to these forces around you, to your bubble, whether it's on Facebook or Twitter, you know, your bubble information, which tells you how to feel about the next political election or climate change or the COVID vaccine. And you have these strong feelings. Feelings are very hard to change. You know, when someone says, I feel really angry about this, you can't really reason with the person and tell them, well, these are the reasons why, you know, maybe you shouldn't be so worried because the emotional part of what their conviction is, is, is so strong. And images do that. So images used in a particular way um, 
are amazing manipulative tools and advertising has known this, you know, for decades. So I think, um, you know, that's one of, one of the main reasons why we should be taking visual literacy really important because in today's world, there is very little text-based information. Most of it is <laughs> just quick, fast and emotional. So we should be able to at least navigate through that space. Uh, but of course, another side of it is that it's um, there's just the joyful world of storytelling there. You know, when you think about comics alone and what they do with the image, with the symbolism, with the layout design, um, with the emotional kind of cues the character is giving, and of course then the text, and you're putting that all together uh, in your head at once to, to make the story. I mean, it's beautiful. So making, just like just mentioned before, making, is a really big part of understanding. So if you have a go at going at making it, then you start to understand how the mechanics work and that's, you know, it takes you from there. Um, yeah. I think I kind of answered your question. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> it. It sounds, it sounds uh, one, of the, one of the things that gets talked about a lot in libraries is information literacy. And it really sounds like that's, that there's a lot that you see tied in with, with that visual literacy as well as textual literacy and all of this that, that can really help um, develop those those critical information literacy skills um, really well. So yeah, it's really interesting. Um, let's try and uh, end on a bit more of a, a fun note than uh, than advertisers manipulating us and everything. Um, one of the <laughs> one of the things with um, that I I liked in the in the book um, and that I know a lot of librarians really like uh, pins and badges and this is something you see at a lot of cons this is something that um, there are plenty of, of pins and badges in the story in fact um, the most of the um, chapter intro pages have a have a badge a pin or a badge or something um, in them as well so um, are any of those those pins and badges in there like that real are they based on real ones that you've seen? Do either of you collect them? And if so, do you have favourites that you want to share? Yes, you go. <laughs> Can you? Uh, Sorry, I do have some um, pins and badges that I've collected over time. Um, probably my favourite one is the little Totoro one that I have that's actually fuzzy. Um, and I've got a couple of different Totoro badges and I'm a huge fan of um, Totoro and Ponyo and um, Hayao Miyazaki movies. Um, so, yeah, they're, oh, and I have some Steven Universe ones as well and I really love those. Um, but I... Uh, the, the badges are all Ashka and that is um, something... I never imagined um, they were so beautiful. Like when I saw them, I was just like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> and then and then Ashka sent me the badges in real life and it was the most amazing thing. I'm like, oh, my God, they're real. <laughs> uh, and actually um, the librarian uh, at Pagnum Library when we are doing our launch was like, where did you get these badges from and where can I find some? Um, so, yeah, I... Um, yeah, I'd love to know more about whether Ash is going to make them more widely available because I feel like a lot of librarians and just a lot of readers uh, who, who like the book would love to get their hands on those badges. They're amazing. But I have them up next to my bed. They're, <laughs> they're so cool. But it was Jess originally, you know, who had that scene in the in the, in the manuscript where uh, Joe buys Maisie those badges when yes. Maisie gets overwhelmed by the con and, and there was uh, particular things you kind of suggested to have on the badges. Oh, like, I'd forgotten that. <laughs> you know, those few little 
um, uh, kind of yeah one-liners. And so I started there. And then when I was designing the book, that's when I got the idea for the Polaroid and the budget every uh, you know setup of the chapter. So there's no people in them, but they give you the mood. And then later it just made sense to make them. And I did Google a lot of different bunches at the time to get the sense of what was out there. And a lot of them maybe are a mix of things that is out there, but no, they're not really uh, copies of anything because, you know, it's copyright and stuff. You have to be <laughs> careful. Um, but yeah, I had a really fun, real fun researching all that stuff. And then I was really lucky that my friend had a budge making machine. So all I had to make, buy was just the, the actual backings and I went nuts, you know, I had like, two, <laughs> I mean, 200 badges in a few months and, and it, it's so much fun. I have a color printer at home, so there's no limit to uh, badge making, one-off badge making uh, all the time. But, um, but I'm, yeah, I'm not sure. Maybe in the future it will be available, but I definitely have a whole bag of them still here and uh, <laughs> it's, been, it's been a joy and they definitely sold well at, at cons and things. So they live, they live on. The book lives out there. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, well, if you do make, if you do end up making them, I'm definitely putting my hand up for some. <laughs> um, so to finish up, um, we always ask um, the people who we chat with, what are three comics or graphic novels that you've enjoyed recently and that you would encourage others to check out? So um, I don't know who wants to go first with this. Jess, you were, you were showing some some before. Did you want – did you have – um, I'm just getting, I'm like, I have to choose. I've got like, you know, maybe Ashka should go first and then I can like try and choose. My, my favourite for ages and ages now, like I love the Tamaki Cousins and of course uh, I, I, I love Skim and I love this one Summer, but I really like uh, Laura Dean Keeps Breaking Up With Me. So that's uh, Mariko Tamaki and Valerie Rosemary O'Connor. Oh my gosh, Valerie has made that book this magical experience. Uh, Valerie is a comic maker who has got this most poetic approach to layout and design. And the book has so much space. So a lot of the pages or spreads will have just one or two speech bubbles and everything else is just this amazingly uh, like curated and organized uh, paneling and imagery that gives you all the senses you need. Like, you know what this scene smells like and feels like and sounds like. I would really recommend looking at that book from a point of view of how it was composed. Um, I mean, the story is really good too, but yeah, for me, what really makes it is Valerie's work. Um, the other thing I love, I mean, Carol, Carol Novak, Girl Town, really great find. It was, uh, I think it's kind of considered independent, really good uh, set of short stories. And another comic maker who I absolutely adore is Eleanor Davis. So how to be happy. Uh, they, I, they all tend to be women um, comic makers. And I don't know, there's something really cool about the way these comic makers just approach comics. And as I said, from a slow point of view, like they see something else in that medium and the, the moments that they capture and freeze uh, are just beautiful. They're like odes uh, to our everyday lives, you know, and, and with a bit of fantasy spin. So I would recommend to check them out. That's great. Yeah. Thank you. This was really hard. Uh, I'm going to go with this one first, The Cardboard Kingdom um, by Chad Sell. And um, it's a really great um, book about a group of um, young kids who live on a street together, uh, really diverse. Um, it has a gender diverse character, which is really exciting for me. Um, and it just, it really makes me happy. So, um, yeah, I bought this one kind of when my kids were a little bit younger and I've been just waiting for them to kind of grow into the right age for this book and, and we're finally here. So we've been enjoying this one and the follow-up 
um, which is really, really great. Um, there's a series um, by uh, Molly Knox Ossetag, um, the Witch Boy series, um, again, looking at um, gender and um, looking at kind of the, the stereotypical gender roles that we're kind of um, forced into and how sometimes we need to break free of those. Um, lots of magic, which is kind of my jam as well. Um, and, oh, no, I've got two. Uh, oh, I'm going to go with Nimona here um, because it has a, um, a disabled character, an amputee, um, who is just so lovely. And, um, yeah, this is one of my favourites as well. Um, I have, like, a little pile of Australian ones. Oh, there's so many things that I want to recommend. It's, like, my favourite thing to do. I have a whole workshop that I do sometimes with kids where it's literally just me for an hour going, you have to read this book and this book and this book. Um, yeah, so thank you for letting me recommend a couple. Um, I'm just going to show this one on screen without saying anything. <laughs> the sneaky fourth. Um that's it. I'll, I'll control myself. Well, thank you. It's they 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 all look great. I'm I'm always I'm never sure if I if I like better when it's books that I know and read and have loved already, and I'm like, oh yes, someone else. Oh yes, like the Tea Dragon Society. Um, and if it's someone else uh, reading what I've already read and liked and and going and they like it too, um, or if it's the the ones that I'm like, oh, I don't know that one. I'll have to go and check it out. And I think. Um, You've managed to um, uh, make me make me really interested in like had a combination from both of you have had a combination of ones that I that I already knew and ones that I'm definitely going to check out now. So thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you for for joining us today for the for this creator chat. Um, what is the best way for people to um, keep updated on your projects and and find out more about about your work? I live on Twitter, so you can find me there. Basically, I have an Instagram account, but I'm bad at it. So um, I have a Facebook, but I'm bad at that too. So find me on Twitter or my website. Yeah, for me, it's Instagram definitely. That's the most updated um, media. But I am updating my website, so it should be kind of interesting soon i might even include a blog which is revolutionary where i talk about things rather than just show pictures <laughs> well, and we'll uh try and make sure we get the details of that down in the description um underneath um thank you very much for joining us thank um, you so much for having us yeah thank you so much it's been a pleasure uh, so Alia Graphic um, has has her own website. Um, it's aliagraphic.blogspot.com. Uh, you um, find us on on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, um, and you can you can email us directly um, if you want to get involved. Um, Aliagraphicinfo at gmail.com. So yeah, thank you very much, and look forward to seeing more of your of your work and everything. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, Yes. Thanks for listening to Alia Graphic Podcast. Hit the subscribe button on our YouTube page and subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Alia Graphic, email us at aliagraphicinfo at gmail.com and check our blog aliagraphic.blogspot.com for updates, monthly roundups of news and new release titles.